age of 14, but I think I had this crystal clear focus that there were three things I wanted to do. Those three things were, had no family here, had $5,000 in savings, and it was really just gonna be a bit of a life adventure. That, oh my God, I'm 30 and I'm single, I'm divorced, what am I gonna do with my life? It's it was, all over. It was like the end of the world. Seriously, this is the beginning. We should totally build a business about making people's day. Flowers, great idea, yeah. cool. Fuck, how are we gonna get them to people? We started having conversations with logistics providers and I was laughed out of every logistics boardroom in Australia. And you wanna do guaranteed same day delivery? Yes. Wow. No. Imagine a world where gifting flowers is as simple and fast and fun as sending a text message. Our guest today made that a reality by turning a traditional industry on its head with a digital first approach. We're talking about a flower and gift delivery service that's not only changed the art of gifting, but also turns over $40 million annually and was recently acquired for $35 million. Today, we'll dive into topics like innovation, brand building, challenging the established norms, and the surprising challenges that came after the big sale. She's an award-winning CEO and co-founder of Lovely. Welcome to the pod, Hannah Spilver. Welcome back to Australia's number one podcast. We are the Little Fish and we speak to the big fish about town each and every week. Please like, share, subscribe. Again, guys, as I've been saying every week, 2024, we're going to donate $1 for every follow, review, and subscriber that jumps on board. So please smash that where, button. Where, where, where are you donating it to, dude? Uh, we, <laughs> wouldn't you like to know? The Cali Fund. No, great point, Benny. Uh, the EB Foundation, our amazing charity, looking to find a cure. So directly to those guys. Um, yeah, please smash it, hit it. Let's do it. Thanks, Benny. Get my no, training no, wheels right. off now. Uh, Hannah, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be uh, described as a big fish. Big fish. First time for everything. <laughs> big fish, yes, do, yes. Do you think I can rebrand to a mermaid maybe? Just something Oh, that... the big oh. mermaid. <laughs> we can make you our mermaid. Yes, I like that. I like that, 100%. Um, Hannah, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, as I said in the intro, story's amazing. You know, like there's grind in there. There's an exit in there, but there's so much more uh, to that story that we'd love to unpack today mm -hmm. because... It's easy to read an article and go, oh, exit at that, you know, oh, well, how easy was that type mm -hmm. thing? But we'd love to hear about hear about the struggles, where it started. Um, there's a lot of value in there. So where did it start for you guys? You 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 come from, come from overseas to sunny Australia at, at some point. I do, yeah. So yeah, I guess like anything in life, context is everything, right? It's definitely not an overnight success story. Uh, so I come from the UK. I grew up in Chester. I moved out to Australia 14 years ago. But I think actually we probably need to go like a little bit further back from there to really understand where, you know, my drive for this came from. Love it. And I think looking back as far as, you know, picturing, picturing myself as a 14-year-old young girl, um, I remember there being three things that I wanted to do, three things that I wanted to achieve. And I used to, you know, talk to my parents about it all the time. And those three things were, I wanted to get married by the time I was 25, mm. <laughs> which I did. And then I got divorced by the time I was 30. So be okay. careful what you wish for. <laughs> so I wanted to be married by the time I was 25. Uh, I wanted to move to Australia and I wanted to start my own business. 
And so from the age of 14, I can't sort of accurately describe why or where that came from. But I think I had this crystal clear focus that there were three things I wanted to do. And I feel like looking back now, although I didn't realise it at the time, a lot of the decisions I made in terms of my studies, choice of where I was going to go to university, uh, choice of my first career path out of university, really all of those decisions looking back I can now see were leading me towards achieving those three things that I'd sort of set out for myself. Um, And whether you want to call it focus or manifestation or whatever I think there's so many different labels you could put on those things Um, but for me I just had three clear goals Um, and from the age of 14 I sort of set about trying to make those happen. Did neighbours have anything to do with the Australian (laughs) thing? You know what it may well have done. (laughs) Neighbours and home and away I think. And coming out to Pinot Court. (laughs) Totally um, maybe deserve a bit of uh, thanks and praise for (laughs) helping me with my vision. Uh, Funnily enough my my husband so I remarried when I was uh, 30 something 32. Um, My husband who's Aussie his best mate, who he was living with at the time, um, was an actor on Neighbours, Scotty McGregor. And he ended ah. up marrying us. He was our celebrant. So <laughs> it, was kind of, it kind of came full circle in the end. <laughs> Long hair, surfy guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Scott McGregor. <laughs> so so um, was there anyone in your family tree? So you said you don't know where the spark for business came from, mm. but was there someone in your family tree, mum or dad or auntie and uncle, who had a business that might have started that catalyst for that thinking? So I think, uh, yes, absolutely. So my dad was, um, my dad had built businesses and sold businesses. um, And I think I'd really seen him ride the highs and the deep, deep lows of entrepreneurship. I mean, Mm. I wouldn't have known it was called entrepreneurship back then. You just know that, you know, when your dad's having a good week at work and when your dad's having a bad week at work and when it's bad, it's really, really bad. Um, So I think in the early days, you know, I had a very real insight into what that world looked like. Mm. Um, And strangely, looking back, it didn't really put me off. It just sort of drove me, I think, even more to want to... I I think what I do recall is this fierce sense of wanting to be independent. I wanted to go out into the world, do something for myself. I didn't want to really learn about stuff. I just wanted to do stuff. I wanted Mm. to learn by doing. Well, that experience kind of normalised it for you as well, just seeing those things happening. It wasn't like you saw Dad go to a job and come home. You saw him going through the the highs and lows of business but um were they were they conversations that you were having or were it just observations that you were seeing about his experiences I think just observations I was having about his experiences um I think the other thing is you know I came from a on both sides of my family a real working class background um and I think I just have come from a a long line of people with a really really strong work ethic mm. you know like seeing your grandparents, your aunties, your uncles, just, you know, grafters, whether they're, you know, um, my dad grew up in a sort of pretty poor Welsh mining village. Um, My mum, pretty similar. Um, So I just grew up seeing people work really hard and that was normal to me. Mm. There was sort of no sense of um, entitlement or that I was owed or deserved anything in the world. Um, But that excited me. I wanted to go out and be able to do my own thing, build my own thing. What about like the bravery of, of being a young girl and, and thinking, just having the thought of moving to the other side of the world as a goal, 
Like, where do you, where do you think that came from? Because most people, like I know, I still live in the suburb that I grew <laughs> up in, and I always, I've actually turned forty five uh, last year, and I've, I've made a, a new bit of a rule that I, at some point I need to move somewhere and I need mm. to do something because I, I think I'll regret getting to the end. And I think you're the exception on probably what most people do. So yeah, where do you think that came from? Oh, look, I think it's a little bit like anything. It's a little bit nature, a little bit nurture. Um, and I think now I've had my own kids. I've got two kids, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And, and now I think I understand um, the reality of that nature part of it a bit more. You know, I look at my six-year-old and my three-year-old and, God, they've got such different personalities. They are such different little beasts, you know. So I think um, you can, I can see that part of your character characteristics and your attitude even are sort of innate that's how I feel about it so I think there was definitely part of my nature which was curious yeah. um which was maybe a little bit courageous um had a sense of like wide-eyed wonder about wanting to get go out in the world and explore but I also think that uh, I see myself as exceptionally privileged in the sense that I was brought up in a family where I was encouraged to dream big believe in myself I think it's a real privilege to be surrounded by people that that give you that sense of self how, how did that tangibly what what did that look like when you were growing up so that you know you were influenced for that so but, but how did how I suppose were you influenced what were the things that were going on well I think part of it was seeing my dad do what he did Yep. Um, and realizing that you know he was he came from very little, um, and he was able to go out in the world and sort of you know achieve, achieve. whatever he set. He didn't always achieve whatever he set his mind to, um, but he gave it a crack. And I think that made me unafraid of um, potentially failing, knowing that that was all part of it. That was okay. And ultimately, you know, I was raised in a family where I was brought up to believe that the most important thing is loving each other supporting each other there's such a huge sense of love and support in my family um and so I felt safe to be able to go out into the big wide world try some stuff maybe fail at some stuff know that I could go home and that my family would you know probably still think that I was the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a superpower in itself. I mean. Yeah, all that yeah. support, that, that nurture is amazing. Like, I mean, your dad was, um, your parents were helping you model action taking because I, I wonder if you've reflected on the success that you've had to date in your business and whether you can sort of pinpoint it down to any one thing. But in my experience, it's um, the, the ability to put one foot in front of the other, the ability to actually do something and uh, iterate along the way um, is probably the number one success trait anyone has because what happens after that there's a whole bunch of um, cause and effect but if you don't have the ability to actually take the idea out of here and actually fulfill it in in real life I mean think of your business it, it was an idea at some point but mm -hmm. you actually had to take action so um, do you think that that you got a a modeling from your parents that um, was unusual for your peer group or was it pretty standard for, for your family? I think it was just pretty standard for my family and I think I just, I don't know, I don't think I had a, I don't think, I don't look back and think I had a particularly difficult childhood but I also wouldn't say I had an easy childhood. I think I was the eldest of three girls um, 
and as the big sister, I think I matured very quickly in a family where, you know, we were exposed to real life, you know, things, you know, themes like uh, my mum suffering from mental health issues, um, my parents getting divorced, my dad losing a lot of money um, in the pursuit of entrepreneurship, mm. um, my grandfather committing suicide. I think... I, I was I was confronted with a lot of quite big themes early on in life. Mm. Um, and I think it just made me realise that the baseline for life is that life's hard <laughs> and that's okay. Mm. Mm. Um, but it shouldn't it shouldn't mean that you give up and stop moving forward. Like that's actually what it's about is how you deal with all of the things the that life throws that you at you. Yeah. Yeah, it's that I, I think like yeah, from a lot of the people that we talk to that had confronted, life has confronted them early, that, yeah, it builds that resilience that you can just, that, you know, you move to the other side. It didn't always work out, but you just keep moving forward. And yeah, have- I think I just had this sense of like, well, it's not supposed to be easy. Mm-hmm. And actually now what I've come to realise is that, you know, nothing in life that's easy is particularly fulfilling or rewarding. And so, but I think there's a bit of a danger in that too, because if you lean too much into all of, the hard stuff um it can burn you out which i've all, so i've sort of experienced both sides of that coin well it'd be great to touch on that at some stage but uh if we fast forward from um uh, that point to landing in australia mm-hmm. are, you, are you here on your own did you bring someone with you what did those early sort of months and years look like yeah so i came with my ex-husband and we the plan was we were going to be here for a year mm. So I promised my family faithfully that I'd be back in 12 months, that it was just a bit of a short-term adventure. Uh, Landed in Australia, knew nobody, had no family here, had $5,000 in savings to my name. Um, And it was really just going to be a bit of a life adventure. Um, In the background, I'd lined up work for myself. I'd been working for an advertising agency over in the UK. um, And intentionally when I'd left university I'd always because I'd had in the back of my mind to move to Australia I'd specifically chosen an agency with an office in Sydney knowing that one day if I worked hard enough and proved myself I could probably persuade them to give me a transfer which is exactly what happened so I'd lined up this job for myself for 12 months um, but I just I just fell in love with Australia I fell in love with the lifestyle I fell in love with the people Um, And I think it really just gave me another sort of, I I leveled up again in my confidence to then go, you know what, actually, there's more to this than a 12 month adventure, there's more for me here. And and it also coincided with the breakdown of my first marriage. Um, And so by 30, I found myself living in Sydney, single, you know, looking back, it makes me laugh. I kind of went through that. Oh my God, I'm 30 and I'm single. I'm divorced. What am I going to do with my life? Yeah, it it's was, all over. It was like the end of the world. I was sort of like, had, I momentarily wrote myself off and then I think I pulled myself together and I was like, seriously, this is the beginning. Um, and then I think, you know, it's amazing when you feel like you've got very little to lose that it, it does really give you that confidence to go, well, maybe now's the right time to start something and and that's really what happened well it's interesting because the because you wouldn't been you, you'd been forgiven for thinking okay everything's gone to custard i'll go back to what i know mm. but you've said no i'm actually going to use it as a springboard to stay here and kick off that's um 
that's admirable. Yeah, because most would grab their bat and ball and go. No, yeah, man, I know I would. Well, if you, it's just <laughs> you're, in a, you're in another place <laughs> with, with, without out. familiarity. Yeah. Well, I think mum and dad were certainly pleading with me at the time to yeah. get on the first plane home. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I just in my gut, I just knew that that wasn't that wasn't for me. It wasn't the right thing. Do you feel like so Australia's obviously home now? Do you sort of claim part Aussie? Does that make sense? Look, I yeah. haven't done the paperwork. Yeah. Personal admin is not my strong point. <laughs> what about like so on the cricket? I, I don't have the paperwork, yeah. Um, but yeah, I do. Like I, I feel like uh, an adopted Aussie for yeah. sure. Like I've got two Aussie kids and an Aussie husband, yeah, and so yeah, I love it here. So Hannah, talk to us about you know you wanted something more. Where did it? Where did the idea come from, and 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 how mm. did it? How did it start out? Mm. So, with my background in the creative industry, I'd, I'd spent a lot of my career helping businesses build brands, and I'd particularly worked in sort of re the retail category. And so, I had this um, desire to build a brand for the grant from the ground up. And what I mean by build a brand is I wanted to build something that was purpose driven. It wasn't just about selling more shit to people and it and it wasn't just about making money like of course you know I'm driven by money but for me money was going to be the outcome of doing something well as opposed to the driving goal what I wanted to do was create a business that had purpose um, and was about making people smile and making yeah. people feel good and I think that's a little bit about um, what I've learned about myself is kind of my personal goals and my personal playbook is I'm a radiator. I like to lift the energy in a room and I like to make people's day. And I, I kind of just had this hunch that I wanted to build a business and a brand that was about that. But I sort of hadn't landed on what exactly the product or service would be. Um, and I was going through a phase of being incredibly homesick, you know, post-divorce, family on the other side of the world. And I was looking for ways to send little something to my mum and sisters to let them know that I was missing them, that I loved them. Um, and I was being confronted with the interflorers of the world, mm. which, you know, the red rose, white, <laughs> fluffy, teddy bear, cliche, overpriced, <laughs> terrible service. Uh, and I thought, geez, there has got to be a better way. There is clearly a gap in the market to do this better. And it fit perfectly with this idea of building a brand that was about making people smile, connecting loved ones, being there for the great days, the bad days, every day in between. Um, and so it just sort of snowballed from there. It wasn't one light bulb moment, but it was a series of kind of little moments of inspiration that you sort of tied together to build into a concept. And so that's when we landed on it being a flower and gift delivery business. Um, and my co-founder, I was working with at the time, so I started the business uh, with Verity and she was sort of heading up project management in the agency. I was heading up strategy and so we had a really complementary set of skills um and we took the leap of faith together we literally went on an evening course to learn how to make flowers we set it up in her kitchen we built the website we were delivering the flowers ourselves. so you built the website yourself yeah yeah, yeah. we did everything yeah, yeah. um and we were pretty well placed coming from a creative course, background yeah, yeah, to yeah. know you know we could do it pretty well i mean looking back we absolutely cringe <laughs> looking back seven years of what we launched with but it got us started it was one step in the right direction but the main thing that you that you nailed or I, I personally think you nailed the brand and you nailed that message that, that 
that you guys are being fun and creative and that different. purpose that play. purpose yeah like so personality so and that, purpose that hasn't changed and you got that right because that's hard to go back and fix i, I suppose the i think pack. so and yeah. i think that's where a lot of businesses get it wrong they start with you know the product and they try and tackle brand and purpose as an add-on and Absolutely. i think it's not, it's not authentic and mm. I think customers are... manufactured. They're ma- it's manufactured. Yeah. Yeah. So customers now are savvy enough to understand when, you know, if a brand's just greenwashing or if a brand's just, you know, trying to add a marketing veneer to something, if it's not actually foundational in the DNA of a business, um, I don't think it comes across well. And for us, that's what made our business. And that's your greatest strength, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, and, that, and that wasn't an accident, which is amazing. And you're about to go into a logistics business. So the genesis of the <laughs> idea is amazing. But then you go and tackle something where you've got to I get know. something Tough fresh to all sides Tough of the country. Like- but I think this is where naivety and ignorance is is a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because had we not had that level of naivety and ignorance <laughs> about the fact, we never even had a conversation about this being a logistics idea mm. or a logistics business. Or are you going to get the... We were just yeah. like... They'll just, they'll just turn a, up. This is a great idea. We like should, Santa Claus yeah. is taking them out of the Lovely. <laughs> we and should totally build a business about making people's day. Flowers, great idea, yeah. cool. Fuck, how are we going to get them to people? How do we keep them alive how if we, we get keep, them to them? And, and you know, I, I, I am not exaggerating when I say only weeks out from launch two to three weeks out from launch we've built the website we've built the product range we've you know done a horrible job of our pricing strategy but we fixed that later down the line we started having conversations with logistics providers and I was laughed out of every logistics boardroom in Australia you know you've got this sort of 30 year old girl rocking up I'm building a business about flowers and we're going to make people's day and it's going to be you know a nationwide business one and Nobody took it seriously. We're going it's, to the moon. Well, yeah, it was like, <laughs> Who wants to get involved? Yeah, they were like, that's kind of cute. There's and only you, so many spots. So yeah, you could... you've got no idea what you're doing. And so, you know, what product do you... So you want to deliver flowers. Yeah, and they're going to be in water, right? So you want to deliver a perishable plow, <laughs> perishable, pro, blah, 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 perishable product that's fragile, that needs to travel in water because part of your brand experience is you deliver them in a jar okay, no idea how we're going to do that. And you want to do guaranteed same-day delivery? Yes. Wow. No. <laughs> and so the only, way to do, the only way to do it was for us to do it ourselves and we had to wait for the market to catch up and eventually, of course, it did. And now same-day delivery is pretty ubiquitous and um, it's not that unique. But eight years ago, nobody was, was that doing a big, it. Was that a big separator for you guys? Do you think that same-day delivery played a big part of you guys breaking away? For sure. Yeah, yeah, I think our service offering, we leaned so heavily into our logistics offering. We were really aggressive with what we wanted to be able to take to market. So we were the first to do same day, but I think to begin with, it was only Monday to Friday. And I'm pretty sure I recall the cutoff time being maybe 1 p.m. So you had to order before 1 p.m. to get it delivered by 5 p.m. And then as we grew over time, we extended our delivery proposition to seven days a week. And you can order up till 5 p.m. to get the goods delivered by 9 p.m. Now, as far as I'm aware, there is no other retailer in any category in Australia that will offer you that 
logistics that service so who's, delivery. Who's running around between five and nine? I was about to say, what, what, what are those? <laughs> Hundreds of people. <laughs> what, Not me anymore, yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Well, that's that's what, just quickly, like what are those days like as a startup entrepreneur committing to those um, deliverables, literally? Yeah. What are those days like for you and your business partner? Because you just threw it away. You said, oh, we had to do it ourselves. But you also had to run the business and, and deliver on the product. That, that, that's, that's enormous. Like, was it like, who's yeah. going on a run? Is it you today, Verity? Load your car? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the early days, it was literally like that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you don't, you just, you just, sort of don't question it because yeah. you're so yeah. hell-bent on building the business. But does that it's, mean you only launch locally, though? If you so, guys- year one, Melbourne only. So, yeah, okay. So, when we started, it was just Melbourne and it was you guys yeah. in the cars figuring yeah. it out. Yeah, awesome. Otherwise, it would have been me flying, you know, yeah, yeah, Or just phoning a friend in Brisbane. I've got yeah. some stuff. Can yeah, you drop exactly. it off for me? Yeah. And did you have confidence in market size? So, for me, like thinking about launching something like that, even now, if I was like starting Slate and you weren't here and I didn't mm, know your mm. story, I'd be like, is there enough people looking to buy flowers? You know, there's obviously lots of florists in Melbourne, but looking to. Is there a big enough marketplace for you to do what you wanted to do just in Melbourne? Look, I think I was pretty bullish about it. Were we confident? Yes. Had we done our due diligence? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I would say is though, and even now looking you know, at other businesses that I'm involved in, I think um, you only need to look to the biggest, com- the biggest name in the category you're moving into if there is one. So for us, we were like, well, Interflora, it's a global business. Um, and we, we had a rough idea of how big they were in terms of the revenue. So that for us was a pretty good validation. It was like people spending hundreds oh, of million dollars on flowers. Yeah. And we don't think they're doing it very well. We think we can do it better. And that was kind of the Bang. validation yeah. we needed. Bang. We were like, yeah. cool. We haven't got any money to invest in customer <laughs> research or market analysis. Yeah, but yeah, for yeah, us, yeah. like yeah. it's a pretty good signpost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we took it from there. Did they take you seriously into Flora at the time? No, they took us seriously when they tried to acquire us, yeah. but no. Gotcha. I don't think anybody took us seriously for a long time. So under the radar worked for you. Mm. So now you've got an interesting um, uh, part of the early part of your story because you had a visa challenge. I did. That meant that you weren't able to go full time into the I business. Did. And then there was a very interesting arrangement that you had with Verity around mm. fairness of working. Can you share that? Mm. Yeah, I can. Um, so. I, the, to stay in the country, the agency I was working for at the time sponsored me. So I was on a uh, working visa. I can't even remember what you call it now. Mm. I'm going back that far. Mm. But essentially my visa was tied to me being employed. Um, and so I was able to go sort of reduce my hours to a part-time capacity, which I think I moved down to two days a week. But I wasn't able to simply quit my job and throw myself into lovely full-time. Mm. And so... Obviously, Verity and I knew this situation, and so we'd talked about, you know, do we wait for me to apply for permanent residency? Um, and, you know, Fez was as excited as I was, pretty gung-ho about just throwing herself into this business, and she was like, nah, let's just go for it. You can work part-time. When you, we sort the visa out, we sort the visa out. Cool, okay. Um, and in theory, that was great, but I think the reality, how you think it's going to feel versus the reality of how it does feel when... She's in the business full time, which is hard for her. So she's got her reality of like, this is shit and hard. And then I've got my reality of I'm working two jobs and I'm also like overcompensating and working on lovely around my hours 
that I'm employed to do with my agency because I feel bad because I'm not there full time, this is shit and horrible. So we both suddenly find ourselves in this reality where on paper we were like, this is going to be fine. We'll work through it. It makes sense. Just didn't feel good. And there was tension. Um, The theme of fairness came up a lot. And so jumping into solution mode, the quickest and easiest way I could see to solve it was, right, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give my business partner half of my salary that I'm earning from the agency I'm employed by, because in theory that immediately evens the playing field. Um, And it worked incredibly well. Mm. Um, And all of those tensions sort of disappeared quite quickly. When When I heard that for the first time, I thought, brilliant, because most partnerships end in some version of someone saying, I'm doing more than you. Of and, course. And so for you to, to, to do that up front, just really um, send a message to Verity that you're, you're all in. But it mm. also, as you said, it, it took away all that angst and just allowed you both to get on with, okay, we're doing what we can with what we got um, and um, no one's being financially compensated any differently. I thought it was, I thought it was a genius and, move. And were you, and guess, because I remember when me and Pete uh, left our jobs, Pete, initially Pete was going to leave before me. Do you remember that? And there was conversation. And I remember thinking yeah. opposite to that, wasn't thinking about money and it never went down that road so it never became reality. But I remember thinking, oh, that's not fair. Why does he get to go full to, you know what I mean? Like I was jealous or envious going, I remember you you saying it's all right, Benny. We'll get you over eventually and stuff. But I was that was that's where I was. I was like, fuck. Then he gets to go and work on this thing that I just want to work on all day, but I have to go over here and hang this bulkhead or whatever it was that I was doing. Do you know what I mean? So did you yeah. have that envy? Yeah, I I think I I don't know. I wouldn't describe it as envy. I think um, I definitely had a sense of frustration because I wanted to go all in. Yeah. All I could think about was lovely. Yeah. Like day, night. Like my agency were definitely not getting their bang for buck out of my time because I was so distracted. Or I just lived and breathed it. From the moment we said we were going to build that business together, I thought about nothing else and I was not going to stop until we achieved what we set out to achieve. So I was frustrated more than envious. I think for whatever reason, and, and maybe it's going back to that childhood thing of like life's not fair and learning that really, really young. <clears throat> I've never really had this sense of like, oh, that's not fair. Mm. Like, but that's not fair. Like, it's just, and I believe in fairness, don't get me wrong. Like, absolutely, you can't argue with the importance and integrity of treating people fairly and things being fair. But it's just not how I'm wired in terms of that being something that comes up for me. Mm. So, Hannah, so you've got through all this stuff, which which is fantastic. What's it like getting... You know, before we spoke, when you sold, you were doing 24 million in revenue mm-hmm. per annum. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were happy with it. Yeah. Like, what was that what journey was like? like? What was the growth like? You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the growth curve for us was that classic kind of hockey stick growth curve that investors that, that 80-20. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think it, it just... It, played out in a way that we could never have expected in as much as in the early days we were sort of doubling in size year on year and that was really pretty it wasn't organic but a lot of it was driven by PR word of mouth we really lent into that in the early days because we had to because we had no money to spend on marketing um and I'm like the ultimate hype girl I love 
you know, I, I am able to, I've realized one of the things I'm able to do is go out to market and create a narrative and a story around a business or brand. I can, I can create something um, conversation worthy. Um, and that's exactly what I did. And that's been the key. With yeah, Lovely. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. we were written about on every online editorial. We had, there was so much noise about Lovely and we were so small. We were so punching above our weight back <laughs> then. But we had this kind of year on year um, doubling in size. And then we had this real crunch period just before COVID hit. We'd made some pretty bullish decisions um, in terms of goals we were trying to hit, revenue goals, sales targets we were trying to hit around two key occasions. So in the world of flowers, um, Valentine's Day and Mother's Day are like your grand finals. Mm. You know that you're going to experience these insane peaks of growth over a 24-hour period of time, right? So you've got to be like game fit mm. um and because of our ambition to grow i'd been quite um aggressive with the targets that i thought we should hit for this particular valentine's day and operationally we simply weren't there um the, de- the, we had, the demand was in market we could have yeah. hit these numbers but operationally we simply hadn't laid the foundations hadn't invested in the right training the right team to be able to deliver on those numbers, huge learning curve for us, huge learning curve for me. Um, and we were in a situation where we messed up our biggest day of trade of the year. We issued a huge number of refunds. We, I think we lost $90,000 in a day, which was huge. We were bootstrapping the business, mm. right? We had mm. six weeks, off the back of this, we had six weeks runway left in the business. Um, we promptly were uh, told by our landlord that we had to move. Because, well, sorry, we were promptly told by our landlord that they were doubling our rent because there hadn't been a rent increase for X amount of years, which we couldn't afford. I mean, mm. with that kind of runway in the business, we couldn't really afford the rent we were paying, let alone face a, yeah. a doubling of rent. So we knew we had to move. Mm. So it's six weeks runway left. We needed to find a new warehouse. Um, and it was sort of that kind of like do or die moment. <laughs> We overcame those challenges by just being um, absolutely scrupulous with our like cost management. We were managed to reduce costs in the business. You know, you do all the obvious things like you renegotiate your payment terms, get yourself an overdraft. Financially, we knew we'd survive, but it was a tough time. Like it was probably the closest we came to going, fuck this, maybe this isn't a thing. Mm. And because you're online, um, reviews are obviously really, e-commerce is really, really important. The first thing I thought about there is when you stuff up a big day like that and it's grand final day, all eyes are on you. How how bad were the reviews and was that an issue? Does that make sense? Is it, or? So one, one of the things I've learned, and I think it's true in life as much as business, it's less about what happens and more about how you deal with it. Yes. And I think we were so on the front foot with owning what was happening. We were telling our customers what was going to go wrong with our order and the fact that it wasn't going to arrive before they even knew there was a problem, we was we were on it. As soon as we realised that we'd mucked up operationally, own, own so if you owned, owned it, it, yeah, yeah, um, and we went above and beyond to make it right. Mm. Um, so, in actual fact, we got so many outstanding reviews. Oh, off so the you back, got good reviews. We got yeah, good yeah, reviews go. off awesome. the back of dealing with it so well. That's mm. great advice, man. 
exactly. and what was the logistic problem overstating and underperforming the orders exceeded your ability to match them in a timely manner was it just as simple as that yeah it was it was basically a time and motion thing yeah. right it's classic op- it's like you know it's the foundations of operations when you're running an e-commerce business it's like pick pack and mm. like how quickly can you physically get orders mm. out of the door so mm. we i think you know we got the demand right we knew there was going to be that much demand in market we'd bought enough product that's the other thing that kills you yes because we've got a perishable product right so if we get our forecasting wrong and we can't sell our product when we think we're going to sell it you've got a warehouse of dead flowers you got you got a beautiful and i'm tipping that a bit early yeah with that like coming in cold like you you ladies were i'm assuming you must have got that wrong before you started to get that right your order oh we got it a lot wrong before we got it a lot right yeah um, and we fine-tuned that now. I mean, it's exceptional how we run our business. We've got like a 24-hour buying cycle. We're adjusting our forecasting every single 24 hours. Wow. So it is fine-tuned within an inch of its life. But yeah, we got it wrong so much yeah. along the way. So how do you... Th- that's interesting, isn't it? That you've got this steady demand throughout the year and then these two big spikes. It's mm. um, What does that look like? You're just letting all of your logistics know that um, everything's going to be scaled 100x for yeah. a 24-hour period and... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, you're planning for it sort of six months or so in advance. You know what the sort of seasonal peaks are going to be. Um, but during the time that we were being acquired, we weren't just dealing with the seasonal peaks, but we were dealing with the COVID mm. hockey stick growth. So we we grew 500% year on year um, in the year that we were acquired. So you're not only just like white knuckling the day to day to get through, but you're also then dealing with these additional peaks in demand. Um, and we were just, we were glutton for punishment, you know, like what we could have done. Ultimately, we were in control of our destiny because we could have capped orders. We could, have capped, we say, could turn yeah. orders off at any point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can yeah. just go, well, actually, <laughs> we're, sold only, out. <laughs> we're sold out, you know. Ultimately, we could have gone, you know what, let's only try and do 3,000 deliveries over Valentine's. And then you create your own reality. But instead, we were like, okay, strap in for the ride of your life. (laughs) Like, let's see how fast this baby can go. Like, this is why we've done this. We cannot miss out on this opportunity. Like, how many opportunities do you get in life for the stars to align, for all of those things to come together at once? You've got the perfect storm with the pandemic. You've had this huge uplift in demand. We were just like, let's go for gold. Yeah. Were you... uh... Because you, you're in your white knuckle ride, you're going for it. You mm-hmm. and Verity, you're doing mm-hmm. the orders. It's a, the world, you know, the world's our oyster. Was it? When did a sale come about? And, and was it? When did you start thinking sale? So, I mean, we'd always been building with the intention of creating something that ask, would so you want that somebody would want to acquire, right? Yeah. And, and again, that was part of knowing why brand was going to be so important to this. Um, because we wanted to make it as appealing as possible for somebody to come along and acquire us. Um, like everything in life, the timing of it was horrible. We were so exhausted from, you know, scaling the business that quickly. And for anybody that's exited a business, you know, everybody will always say to you, oh my God, it's a slog. It will take 100% of your time. And, and so you're trying to do that as well as mm. run a business that's, you know, growing as fast as it ever has. Um, and it's a classic story, I think, of being in the right place at the right time. I had it in my head from day one that we would sell the business by basically me networking my tush off, 
you know. And like I said before, I came to this country, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. It's not like I had a school network or a university <laughs> network. You know, I wasn't like part of the fabric of the startup, startup ecosystem. So I knew I had to go out there and meet people and figure it out and put myself up there and tell people the story of what we were trying to do. And I was, in an, I was at a business dinner called Digiset in Melbourne and I was sat next to this lovely guy from Macquarie Bank and he was asking me what I did and I told him about Lovely and he said, I met some guys this week who are actually looking to acquire a business, an e-commerce business in Australia. Um, they've actually got a similar business to you over in Southeast Asia. You should meet them. Do you want me to introduce you? Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, someone to introduce me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a couple of days later, I had a phone call with them. They were really interested in acquiring Lovely. Um, we then decided that we were going to run a formal process um, because we there was so much positive coverage about Lovely at, at the time. Lovely was a bit of a, it had this moment where it was just a bit of a darling in the kind of d to c market absolutely yeah yeah yeah. because in covid like you know everybody was doing it tough businesses were closing down physical retail was at a total standstill and we were completely bucking the trend so we knew it was it was the right moment you just know mm. um and so we ran a formal process and yeah we had upwards of probably 20 different interested parties in our data room looking at our P&L and all of doing all the financial due diligence. Um, we had a number of offers on the business at that time. And then ironically, at the end of the process, we sold to the people that had approached us yeah, in the yeah. first place. Yeah. <laughs> and was there any risk? Is there any risk in, um, in when, when you're going to exit? Do you have to invest money? I'd imagine you need to be fit and ready to sell. So you'll need to invest a, a bit of money to go in, law, sure. in lawyers and stuff. So is there for a risk sure. of getting to the end and it not panning out and you've, you've, you know, you're in the hole for half a million dollars because you've had lawyers and people and you're negotiating and you might, was there a time, I guess, that you were yeah. worried? Um, I don't think, I don't think we were worried because I just, I, 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 I just knew that the, I knew that I knew there was enough interest. There was so much competitive tension that I knew that somebody was going to acquire the business. It wasn't a question of if; it was just a question of how do we pick the right partner? Who, who's the right person? So, but yeah, of course, like before to get yourself. What kind of what kind of do you remember? What kind of investment to to run that kind of process? Well, it, a, a lot of it is caught up in the sale price, right? Because a lot of it is. Com is a percentage commission right. based on the sale price. So that's the killer. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you've got to be pretty fierce on, you know, you've got to have a good lawyer on your side to like, so, so just negotiating the mechanics of that contract before you even go into negotiating with the people. Yeah, yeah. There's so many, there's a myriad of negotiations that you'll have to go that's through. Amazing. So setting yourself up to be in a good position to even negotiate with the people yeah, trying correct. to acquire you. Yeah. Um, and then you've got to invest in a great accountant. You've got to invest in a great lawyer. So you're probably talking hundreds of thousands of dollars setting up the perfect situation to sale, yep. to sell, sorry. And then you're talking about, depending on how much you sell for, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in commission in the sale of the business. Yeah. So it's expensive. And yeah. it's and it's something that you wouldn't have much experience in. So selling no, a big business and totally. these people... You know, commission people that are commission based would see the opportunity, 
and say, well, hey, let's sign up at this. And at the point, it could seem low. Well, that's where you've got to have the right team. Yeah. We surrounded ourselves with some really smart, experienced people so that we knew that we were never going to get taken for a ride. Overpay. Yeah. Um, but also, like, first world problems. Like, you're selling a business for, like, <laughs> know. you know, there's, you like, there's also, like, the reality check of, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, poor poor us having to pay all of these, you know. It's a good problem to have. It's, a, it's kind of a nice problem to have. Yeah. It's like, you know, having a big tax bill. Well... Yeah, don't it's get, kind of so, yeah. a good problem to have in many ways. How uh, how special was that moment with so many questions with Verity? <laughs> you know, was that was that a amazing moment with your friend? You know that this you started it with. Um, it should have been. I wish it had been. I think it's not that it wasn't an amazing moment. I was so utterly exhausted. By the time that that deal completed, I think my only real emotion was just relief mm. and a sense of wanting to sleep. <laughs> mm. what, what was the first purchase? Was there a first? Was there? Any, were you waiting for money to hit? We've spoken to other yes. exits and there's the first big funny purchase. how the people, the yeah, first yeah, big purchase. Did you have yeah. that mapped out before, did. or did you stay? Oh yeah, we took a bit of a punt. <laughs> yes, so. Yeah. Story of my life. We'd taken a bit of a punt that this was all gonna kind of, and I think also that added then added to the pressure right, of trying to get mm. it completed. But yes, we. I bought my dream. My husband and I bought our dream home, um, and talking to some of the corporate advisors that we worked with, they were laughing and they said, you know, every female entrepreneur we work with, when she exits a business, she buys her dream home. Every male entrepreneur we work with they exit their business <laughs> and they buy a sports car <laughs> but it's like that sh- you know it's like that really beautiful childhood dream you yeah. know the girls are playing with like their doll's the doll house, house and their dream home and and it was hot just wheels. and it was just so wheels. innate it was yeah. so innate and i tell you what like i wake up every freaking day in this house and it fills me with nothing but utter joy and gratitude mm. that, that i have been able to create that for my family yeah well done terrific story i mean can you can you help people who've never understood that experience of what it's like to have a a living breathing business that continues to provide you with cash flow over time that all of a sudden you get this lump sum of money Mm -hmm. but that annuity stops Mm. so you go from continually adding to the pot to now the pot is, if I don't have other alternatives, the pot's actually going to go down. Yeah. And it's, it'll be a, a, a weird experience for everyone on paper goes, well done, nice work, all that money in the bank. But there's got to be a feeling of lack of continuity that comes from the cash flow. 100%. Um, yeah, it's, it's like anything in life. It's just a different, it's a different, a new set of problems. So your financial concerns don't necessarily evaporate they just change shape slightly Mm. so you know how do i not completely fuck this up how do i make sure sure that i retain some degree of financial freedom that i've worked so hard for um how do i make sure that that this position we're in doesn't suddenly disappear over time yeah um i'm a girl that likes to shop uh you know i've definitely enjoyed and you know and that's part of it like you want to be able to enjoy the money you've worked so hard for but at the same time it's really overwhelming to suddenly realize that you've got a new set of responsibility not just 
to yourself, but to your family mm. to protect that for your future, for their future. Um, and, you know, people say things like, oh, you never need to work again. And, well, I do. Ne- Actually, I, d- yeah, I do. Yeah. I yeah. absolutely do need yeah. to work. I need to continue to work, not just um, financially, but, I mean, mentally, just for me, for who I am. Like, I could never, I could never stop. Well, it kind of ignores the fact that to get into that position, you were someone who needed to keep their mind ticking over anyway. So yeah. for it to just be a vacuum of stopping is just, it's, it's not Yeah, it realistic. was really hard. It mm. was really hard. I definitely had that sort of like existential crisis. Mm. And it also coincided with me turning 40. And so mm. I think I had a midlife crisis. <laughs> mm. I think I had like all of the crises <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Um, and it was really, really hard. Can you talk more to that? What what was the experience? Yeah, for sure. So I think in my mind, I had fallen into the trap, like lots of people do, if I'm being kind to myself, um, of thinking, if I work this, if I just get to this point, if I just make this much money, if I just build a successful business, if we sell it, if I just buy this house of my dreams, then life, I can then enjoy my life and everything will be okay and I'll feel good and like, cool. Then it's it will almost just, like your destination. It's just like, yeah. cool, I'll have arrived and, you know, there'll be blue skies and, you know, I'm going to go on vacation. Is that how it works? That's my plan. Is that, what's, what, how does that end up? Is that not? Well, look, yeah, yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> you still turn up. You still, you still got to wake up the next spoiler day. Spoiler alert. Um, life is still life, right? So going back to that whole idea of like you grow up and you realize life's pretty hard and shit things happen. And, um, and look, I, I say that it's, I, I, I am not a pessimist. I'm definitely a glass half full person. I see, I try and see the good in almost every situation where it's possible, but still, you know, like stuff happens and family's hard and, you know, you've got parents that are getting older and people get sick and they're on the other side of the world. And, you know, this, it doesn't, it just doesn't happen like that. So mm. what happened to me was I suddenly found myself um, going from working 100 miles an hour and having crystal clear focus to dead stop overnight. Mm. So you just stop working. You've sold your business. Um, you suddenly think, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I started suffering from absolutely chronic panic attacks and anxiety. I found myself about four weeks after we completed in emergency at 4am in the morning thinking I was having a heart attack. Mm. I woke my husband up in the middle of the night, pleaded with him to call an ambulance and literally thought in that moment I was dying. It was terrifying. It was physical. It was a physical, it was absolutely a completely physical manifestation of the stress I'd put my mind and my body through over a sustained period of time. And I think, you know, it's like that classic analogy of you're working really hard, you go on holiday, you get sick because you've like given yourself permission to stop. And it was like a really extreme version of that. I stopped and my body just basically gave me the birdie and was like, (laughs) okay, this is what you've done. Mm. Like, Mm. and I, it was terrible. And, and so my my husband and I had made the lifestyle decision that after we'd sold the business, we would move back to the UK to be with my family for six months. And so in my head, 
The story went something like, I'm going to sell my business, I won't have a care in the world, we'll relocate to the UK, I'm going to turn 40 in the Greek islands, I'm going to treat <laughs> all my family to this once-in-a-lifetime vacation, which I did, by the way, yeah. mm. um, and I couldn't enjoy a single moment of it. Interesting. Yeah, mm. it was really hard, and it took me six months from pretty much June to December of last year. Um, and I'm a, you know, I'm a problem solver by nature. I threw the kitchen sink. Trying to, trying to figure out. Trying to yeah, like yeah. solve this problem yeah. of why I was feeling like I was feeling. It did not make sense to me. And the problem was I was trying to rationalize it. And it wasn't rational. You can't talk yourself out mm. of it. I was like on paper. I've got, I've got financial freedom. And I've got, you know, I don't have to work. And this we're, is I'm meant to be happy. This, yeah. What is going on? Why yeah. can't I control this? And so I did all the things you're supposed to do. I was exercising you know, rigorously. I was going to yoga twice a day. I was talking, I was walking and talking. I was talking to all my family. I was surrounded with a bubble of love. My mom and dad, my stepmom, my sisters, my auntie, my husband, my kids in the UK. I was seeing a psych, um, a, a therapist. I was seeing a psychiatrist. Nothing was happening. And it got to the point where after five months, life, it, it was, it was a living hell. It was truly unbearable. And I, as a glass half full, never, ever, ever thought I would be a person that called my GP pleading with them to help me. Like, mm. you have to help me yeah. now, today. I don't know how I'm going to get through another hour of feeling how I feel. And that, for me, was just the most out-of-body experience because I'm resilient i have courage Superwoman. i'm Superwoman. like Superwoman. i can yeah, do these things yeah, yeah, i'm crazy. like i've got my shit together this is something that happens to other people this is not something that happens anxiety? to me is that more it was anxiety, anxiety. it yeah. was I, I was i was experiencing panic attacks multiple times a day i would wake up consistently through the night my heart beating out of my chest it was like there was a tiger in the room like i was con every time and, I, and because there were so f such physical symptoms, I was convinced there was something physically wrong with, you. wrong with me. I would put my children to bed every night. It's, it's awful to say this out loud. There was a period of time where every time I put my kids to bed at night, I thought it was the last time I was going to see them. Mm. Cool. Did it come back to those three statements that you made that you were going to be married at 25, you were going to have a business, you're going to move to Australia, and all of a sudden you're in Australia and you don't have that business anymore and you, you, your identity is totally tied up in the fact that you're a successful person that's yeah. had this startup that's now exited. Is it, was, was it, an, so did you, what was the conclusion? Was it an, part of your identity was missing? I think it was many things. I think it was my, part of my identity was missing. It was lack of focus and when you haven't got focus and anything to kind of productively channel your energy into, I, I have a tendency to worry anyway so it was kind of like the perfect storm mm. um it was burnout it was it was mm -hmm. psychological burnout from being under that much stress for that long and actually not listening to my body there was so many warning signs over time that i ignored that i was just burning myself out um but i wouldn't stop i was absolutely like relentless in my focus and effort um which you know on the one hand helped me achieve what I wanted to achieve and on the other hand taught me a really mm. big lesson about kind of both sides of that coin the dark and light side of everything that you want to achieve in life um there's always a cost absolutely I was going to say what was Verity up to was she how did how did did she have a similar experience or was she in Ibiza 
<laughs> she was waiting for me in the Greek <laughs> yeah, Islands. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, had the, she had the bears on ice. She was I'll, meet you, she'll be here soon. <laughs> yeah. I'll meet you at Pasha. Han, where are you? Han. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Hannah, it would be remiss of us not to ask about the brand because I like I go back to that again. Yep. You were a branding person. It was a brand yep. play. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the story of the brand as far as lovely, how you how you came up with it. Was it always that? Um, yeah, that, that full brand journey, I suppose. So the, the first thing that came up was the name. So I, I guess off this idea of wanting to create something that was about, you know, making people feel good and spreading a bit of love in the world. And so lovely as a name existed before the idea of, you know, flowers and gifts and all of right. those things. And then um, I love writing. I love playing with words so you did and the LVLY so I did the, the LVLY yeah, yeah, yeah. knowing how hard lovely would be to trademark <laughs> um so did that and then I was just having fun writing so coming up with all the different phrases around you know you lovely thing you lovely so fucker have a lovely day the stuff. tone yes. of voice yeah. so we kind of created that and intentionally wanted to be a bit irreverent and playful and um you know we, I think we were starting lovely when social was just really kind of like taking off. So being able to post something oh. like you lovely fucker on the socials, knowing that that would create a momentum mm. of its own. So it was very intentional in terms of trying to create something that would build momentum without needing a lot of money behind it. Cause it was very shareable and it was very Instagrammable. Mm. Um, and it was a story. You, and you, it was a story. You said that before that was your strength was to be able to create these stories or narratives that people can buy into and share. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, Absolutely. So and then, and then we just, you know, we, we sort of, we looked at the, the branding very holistically. So I think, you know, years ago, branding was your name and your logo. And now we understand that branding is every single touch point of your business it's for you it's you guys right like it's the founder it's what your story is um it's how you talk about the business it's how quickly your website loads it's what your delivery offering is it's what fonts you use um i think one of the things that um was unique about us was we spent a lot of energy trying to figure out a unique packaging solution that would enable us to send flowers through the mail. Mm. One of our advisors challenged us really early on and he was like, oh, look, and we used to get this all the time. I don't know how scalable this business is. <laughs> so I know if you would invest in us. Uh, and I'm thrilled to say that they yeah, didn't. It was really that. nice yeah, owning yeah, yeah. 100% <laughs> of the business <laughs> when we sold it. But oops. Yeah, uh, you're yeah, yeah, they might have had some regretful little, <laughs> little yeah, moments. Yeah, I know, but we were stoked. Um, so, yeah, we, we invested a lot into our packaging so that we could solve that problem around scalability. So we were like, oh, how good would it be if you could just send flowers through the mail, so many problems with why that would work. But we figured it out. So the way we figured it out was actually looking at different, like taking learnings from different categories. So we started off by, um, you can't look much further than Apple if you want to look at world-class packaging. So Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research and trying to understand how to Apple build that packaging and I learned that there's such a thing as a box engineer in fact yeah, I have a whole team of Irvine, box engineers is it Irvine was the designer I think I Apple. don't know I remember reading the book there was he the, the designer guy? which so, is yeah yeah well, I needed I needed an Irvine um, I didn't have an Irvine nor could I ever afford one at the time um, so I did a bit of research in Melbourne found a local basically a cardboard manufacturing company and I'll never forget the day I rocked up at their office with like a jar of flowers and an empty iPhone box and I was like 
I need you to create a box a bit like this iPhone one, but I need it to house the flowers and we're going to send it through the mail. And this is going to be how we scale our business. And I think he thought I was absolutely bonkers, but that's essentially how we developed this um, packaging offering. And we worked with um, experts over in uh, Holland around a solution for how to keep flowers hydrated in transit. So you could get rid of the water in the jar. Cause obviously you can't put that in a box. And so it was a real kind of creative experiment of how to solve this problem to make our business scalable. So on the one hand, it had huge commercial value to solve that problem, but it also had huge brand value yeah. for the customer unboxing mm. experience. Um, and that was a real turning point in terms of helping us get Australia-wide coverage. Yeah, and it's shareable again, right? And um, shareable. Yeah, shareable yeah. and unboxing again, yeah. which is, you know, huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fully re engineered this whole freaking thing, didn't you? <laughs> Look, we put some thought into it. <laughs> it's actually like, because we sit here with a lot of people, but you've articulated from the very moment that everything was very deliberate, well thought out, started with the brand. Like you had Lovely before it was even a flower business, right? Because yep. you knew the story. And that, for the people playing at home, we've had Dane Walker on, the branding guy who's a, who's a genius in branding. That's the power of brand. Yeah. we always talk about that here. And people, the biggest mistake people think is they just assume it's a logo. Like, like you know. Yeah. And I think that's changing because information dudes like Dane are changing that with the way they're sharing information and the accessibility. But man... The power of a brand is, you know, how much did we sell for again, PK? Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and that was on the back of a, you, a conscious decision is I'm going to create a brand, I'm going to tell a story, and the rest I'm going to figure out. Yeah, and I found a problem. And I found, it, yeah, a, and I found a problem and a solution. And, and the whole way along, it was brand, 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 brand. Well, I think that's how you make impact, right? And that's how you become a household name because otherwise you're just selling stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we just didn't want to just sell, sell more stuff. stuff. Yeah. We wanted to like try and not change the world, but if you're going to work that hard, at least, you know, like give it a good nudge, do something good. You don't have to try and save the world, but if you're making it, you know, incrementally better yeah. and you're building a place where people rock up for work and have fun and there's a good culture and yet you realize you're actually impacting people's lives. So like, sort of that's make, cool. make people feel something. Make people feel something, yeah. yeah. So how do you channel um, the next decade then? Because you've obviously got um, to a position now of, um, you know, financial peace. Yeah. But um, you've got a, a very active, clearly a very active mind, but uh, some some scars along the way on how you would do it differently. Yes. So what, is, what does the next decade look like for you? So I think the next decade for me, uh, you know, I'm in a really... Um, privileged position where I think I now realize that the journey is more important than the destination yes I am like really <laughs> if I'm not going to have fun doing something mm. I'm not going to do it and I don't mean that in a frivolous way like I'm going to go out and party like I'm for I love what I do I love work to me is fun but I've got to work on the right thing so I know that I don't want a job but I do want a mission and if that can be a mission that I'm passionate about and that I'm going to have work with people who are smarter than me, people who are going to challenge me, that I'm going to have fun along the way, cool, I want to do that. And that's what I'm going to spend the next decade of my life doing it, of my life doing. And I think if I do that, um, you know, money will be an outcome. Mm. But it's just, again, it's not, it's not the goal. I'm not going to spend the next 10 years of my life trying to climb Mount Everest 
um, to earn more cash. I just want to have a bit of fun, work on things I care about. Uh, and so that's that's what I'm setting out to do next. So it'll stay in the business lane, though. There'll always be some form of commercial oh, sure. enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just going to spend your time. Another brand in the. Well, I've got a couple <laughs> so actually. Easy to bloody pull together. And... Yeah. yeah. I've got a couple. So I've I, I so I'm still involved in Lovely. Um, yeah. I sit on the advisory board and I spend some time with that team every week. Um, I've just helped Limitless, who acquired Lovely, develop a new business and a new brand which will be coming to market soon. I can't talk about that, but that's been a really fun project for me to work on. Um, I've invested in um, a business that's Melbourne-based at the moment called Buff. It's in the beauty industry. Um, amazing female founder. She has built up a network of nail studios and she's developing a nail care range, which will also sell direct to consumer. So that's been fun because, yeah. you know, that's a big brand that's play. That's a brand play. Man. It's a brand play. Yeah. Mm. It's very, I've got so many learnings from Lovely. Like there's Absolutely. so many cross-category opportunities there that I can kind of pull across. But I'm also supporting another female founder who, you know, I was in her shoes, yeah. found it really difficult to raise money. We didn't raise money. Um, so it's nice to be able to kind of go full circle on that. Mm. Um, and then I'm also alongside that developing a new product and brand in the beauty space, which will probably come to market mid mid 2024. Does it have a brand name yet? It does, but I won't <laughs> be sharing it with you today. <laughs> oh, I love it. But it's a goodie. Yeah, that's mm. the play, isn't it? Yeah. Hannah, this has been amazing. Thank amazing you. chat. You've done so much and you've still got a fair bit to uh, conquer. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, well done. I keep telling myself it's just the start. (laughs) (laughs) It's always just the start. Quick Um, one though, quick one. Uh, You've you've now gone from captain of the ship to selling to someone and you're now an advisory, Mm. so no longer the captain. What's that paradigm shift like? Oh, that's a bit tough actually. Um, Yeah, I found that a baptism of fire. I love just being able to sort of like fly by the seat of my pants, make calls, you know, change things quickly, implement things. It's been... Not what I thought. I I think in my head I had the rose-tinted glasses idea of, you know, I'll have all of the, opinion, <laughs> all of the opinions the and yeah. none of the responsibility yeah. and wouldn't that be a nice position to be in? But actually, um, I mean, I do very much still have all of the opinions, but I also have none of the power <laughs> to make things happen um, or sort of like push decisions through. So, yeah, I've had to... Um, really work on I think patience (laughs) um that's been a learning curve for me but you know at the same time it's been amazing to see the team we built thrive and level up with Vez and I stepping aside because Mm. it's opened up a whole new chapter of responsibilities and opportunities for the team that we put in place, yeah, which is really fulfilling to see how much they've grown um, and the impact that their career has had on their life and their family and the opportunities yeah. that they now have. Like, that's pretty cool. That is cool. But the, the real test will come when there's that fork in the road decision, strategic decision where you go, no, we're clearly going left. And they'll go, no, we're going right. And you'll just go, based on everything I know, on everything I've done from the origin of this company, you should have gone left, but you chose to go right. That'll that'll be the big challenge for you at some stage in the yeah, future when I they have do no that. Doubt. Yeah, I've no doubt. So I've got some other stuff going on on the <laughs> <Yeah>. side too. <laughs> yeah. That was the job. See, they that's, got rid of him and then they bought him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the distraction. Nah, awesome, Hannah. This has been a great chat. We've got a quick little segment that we do that okay. we run. It'll be a little bit of fun before we wrap up. Five rapid fire questions, mm-hmm. just to get to know our guests a little bit. Random questions. 
Bonnie puts them in for me. Um, <laughs> what's your favourite comfort food? Donuts, jam donuts. Oh, hey. Daniel's donuts is that? Would that be your number one? Um, donut I, I'm supplier? not brand loyal. Just give me a jam <laughs> if donut. It's got some jam in it. It's, if it's got jam in it. Oh, I've become I'm a Daniel's Donuts guy, man. This, 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 I don't know who Daniel is. No. We, should get, we need you to get him on the get podcast. Get Daniel man, on the podcast. I, I can't drive past without stopping him for a six-pack, man. And then, <laughs> and then I say to my wife, because you can buy him, you buy him in six, yeah. and then I go, yeah, I want one, right? <laughs> and then I try and, and then if one of the kids is not, I say, well, you're not having a donut, and I just try and rack up all the donuts while I'm left with, <laughs> left with all six of them. Now we know why he's a cat lover. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm a, I'm a donut too. Great, jam donut. If you weren't in your current job, what would you be doing? Oh, something. Starting something. Starting something. Starting something. Starting and finishing Starting something. Starting and finishing something, yeah. What's the most daring? I'd be, I'd be chewing my husband's ear off about the next thing. <laughs> the next thing that I'm going to do. Sounds like a good man. He is. He's very patient. And he's, how, I was thinking earlier, he's been stitched up hard as well. Like, how, what does he do? Your birthday? Like, he can't just go to Lovely and get you some flesh. No, I know. Come on, dude. He's got to work doing? hard. Yeah. yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, the benchmark's, the benchmark's way too high. The go-to, the yes. best shifting service in the country. Yeah. He can't use, you know what I mean? Yeah. What's your most daring thing you've ever done? Mm. Probably all of the above. Yes, Left I was going to say. I feel like moved every- to Australia, starting <laughs> yeah, a business, yeah. thinking she can do logistics. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. I like it. Favorite podcast other than Australia's best podcast here? Oh my god! Probably. I know I'm late. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I do love. We don't have time for this. Do you know we don't have time for this? No. Gemma Peanut? No. Okay. We'll check it out, no. Um, probably a very female skewed audience, to be fair, okay. to, to the guys in the room. <laughs> but for any lady listeners, get onto it. Yeah, yeah cool. Love it. Uh, and book, physical book or ebook, but physical book. Have you mm. got, have you got like one? business book or fiction or? One you recommend the most. Oh, geez. Well, fiction, my favorite all time book is Shantaram. If you haven't read that, get onto that. Um, who's, that who's that boy? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me uh, that. Google it. No. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Don't need to know that now. <laughs> no, no, no. Available at all around. good online bookstores. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, and I read so many business books. Yeah, give us your But best. you know, what? the one I'm reading this week, and I had such low expectations, very unfairly, clearly, by Arnie Schwarzenegger. Oh, really? Or yeah. Useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly... Yeah practical like such a humble guy like massive respect to him yeah um nearly walked past it at the bookshop maybe didn't take it seriously actually give it a read there's a netflix series on arnie and the fact that he's he's nailed three disciplines like he's done unbelievable unbelievable work ethic ridiculous um and actually really made me stop and reconsider some of my sort of assumptions around him and when you realize what he's achieved in terms of like bodybuilding hollywood actor governor like unbelievable determination mm. and focus a mm. lot to be learned mm. and uh, big termination over there as well like he, yeah. you know, he didn't yeah. speak english and had so much against yeah, him everything you know arrived him, with yeah. nothing spoke their own language nobody took him seriously oh that reminds me of francis Ngannou. do you guys know who that is the UFC heavyweight dude from Gundam, like he grew up in, oh, had nothing, ended up in, you know, travelled to America, heavyweight champion of the world. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, 
Crazy, Love crazy it. story. Love it. Never heard of him, but I'll take your word for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> you know what? I guarantee there'll be a documentary on this guy by the time he's finished. Mm. Amazing. Hannah, this has been awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Loved it. So many great lessons. That's it, guys. Please like, share, subscribe, and give to our amazing charity, EB. Remember, follow, subscribe. We'll donate a dollar. Links are, and if you want to donate directly, of course, the links are always all across the socials and uh, in the comments below. So, yeah, get involved and check them out because they're a good charity and they need all the support. Get around it. Thanks again, Hannah. Thank you so much. Pleasure. See you at the top. You. <laughs> <laughs> of a winning team. People can find a better version of themselves if they choose. Hmm. You just need to go start some shit. Action is all that matters. Be a man of your word. I think I look back now and I'm like, whoa, that took some guts. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. See you at the top. New episode every Wednesday.